The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to this to the retirement and IRA show Q&A edition for this week we've got uh, as usual a couple of social security questions to deal with and I've heard we've got kind of an interesting one not that they're all not interesting but maybe an extra interesting one and uh, then Jim I'm sure is we get a lot of questions recently about uh um, Secure Act issues, um, changes to rules on retirement plans. So I bet we've got at least one of those as well. But I'll let Jim come on here and kind of share what he sees in today's show coming up here. I know it's going to be full of questions and hopefully also full of good answers. Um, but uh, Jim, if you're ready... We can dive right in, probably, although Jim might have some stuff to share before we actually get into the questions. Jim does have a few little things to share before we get into the questions, okay. but uh, welcome, everyone, to the Retirement and IRA show. Uh, unlike the show we recorded, I think, on Tuesday, which played on Wednesday, the EDU show, when I did it at 5 o'clock, but it felt like it was 9 o'clock, um, it's actually just uh, early at Late morning, not even early afternoon yet. So about 11.20, 11.30 here in Colorado. I did a, I did my morning, quote unquote, jolt uh, of about three and a half miles and, and feel good. And then I attended a uh, continuing education seminar and now I'm here recording. So it's been a, a nice active morning for me. How, uh, how are you doing? Oh, I did a little work before this moment, getting ready for some stuff I'm doing this afternoon with a client and then... Uh... I'm looking out at the beautiful weather uh, through the window, and uh, honestly, I'm a little bummed that we're doing this now instead of me being outside, but it is what it is. <laughs> it's a work well, day. You can, so you can record outside. Well, it's a little, I don't know. I don't think people want to hear the nature sounds and the traffic, <laughs> occasional traffic sounds and the dog barking and all that kind of stuff. But. Oh, 
you never know. Birds chirping in the background might be pleasant for people. True. I have no idea. True. But um, anyways, for those who don't know jolking, J-O-L-K-I-N-G, it's kind of uh, half jogging, half walking. And I, I've started to do that uh, on my it- morning routines in between my hikes. Uh, after reading an article that said kind of um, play up your walking routine and, and try to get your heart rate going a little, uh, although they did say in the article and acknowledged that uh, just plain old walking is actually excellent and you don't have to uh, really push yourself, especially in your 60s, which I am fast approaching and pretending you're in your 20s again. But uh, they suggested uh, just walking up hills, which Colorado has plenty of. Uh, but when I was in Florida, there are no hills. It's just, it's a flat as heck state for the most part. So I started jogging and walking and uh, I enjoy it. So that's what I do now. And uh, anyways, that's jolking if well, anybody wants to Clarify try one little thing for me. Is, when you say jolking, is it is it you do a little walking and then you shift into jogging and then go back to walking? Or is there actually a pace between walking and jogging that you're doing? No, I, I usually start with walking first and uh, I'll walk maybe, I don't know, not far at all, a couple hundred yards just to kind of loosen up a little. Mm-hmm. And then I start jogging and uh, it's not a fast jog, folks. Uh, I hadn't jogged in 28 years. I think I shared this on an earlier show uh, after severing my ACL on my right knee uh, back when I was a police officer and then developing a condition called reflex sympathetic dystrophy in that knee, which I won't get deep into, which caused uh, my muscle to actually atrophy down to 80%. It just was a, it was a horrendous period of time that I was going through. I certainly won't get deep into it. It was another case, though, where the doctors, actually my doctor was named Charlie Brown, and um, that I remember uh, because I got injured on, on duty, the city was paying my medical bills and they were self-insured. They didn't have insurance. So you had to get permission from uh, your supervisor, which for me was the chief of police, uh, for, for medical treatments. And I remember literally going into the, the chief's office because I wanted to be sent to Mass General uh, up in Boston, which is a phenomenal hospital, to see Dr. Charlie Brown. And when I went in there to explain that to the chief and I told him his name was uh, Charlie Brown. He actually got angry at me because he thought I was BSing him. And I just always remember him yelling at me, Officer Solnier, if you think I'm going to believe that you're going to see Charlie Brown, is this some kind of joke? (laughs) (laughs) And I was flabbergasted. I was like, no. I mean, he even said to me in his little tirade, who would name their son Charlie if their last name was Brown? (laughs) But these people... (laughs) <laughs> I guess he could have legally changed his name, but that would be. Well, I think he probably odd, liked it. Yeah. I thought it was kind of. It's I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think growing up, he was probably ridiculed, but look where it got him mm-hmm. at Mass General as a very, very well respected doctor. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, Charlie Brown told me that there was a less than 10% chance uh, I would be able to beat RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. They call it something else now. Um, cause it was quote unquote incurable. Uh, and I beat it. It just another one of those weird things. I beat that stroke. I beat RSD. I don't know how many lives I have left. Yeah. It's very cat like. <laughs> I'm like a cat. Um, but anyways, because of the RSD and the repaired ACL, uh, 
I had this aversion to ever doing anything that would cause a knee problem again, mm-hmm. or especially require having to go in. The RSD was called by caused by the actual puncture of the operation, they said, not the severing of the ACL. So I just didn't want to chance it. Mm-hmm. But now I'm willing to, and, and, and I, I run on very flat. Uh, I'm not going to start trail running. I, I'm amazed when I'm out hiking and I see trail runners just fly. I'm, I'm struggling to go up maybe a 15% incline, which is very difficult at 9,000 feet, say, and I've got my hiking pole and I'm struggling to get up it. And then a trail runner just flies by you (laughs) on the way up. And you're like, oh, my God. But I have no idea how trail runners can do it because I I fall just hiking. I couldn't even imagine if I was trail running up something. So I'm on very, very flat surfaces, folks, when I quote unquote jolt. But in answer to your questions, I've started and uh, I just kind of set these goals for me as I start jogging, Chris. I find a a uh, landmark uh, in the distance, and I say, okay, let's try to get that far uh, before you consider stopping. And that's what I do, and, and I kind of push myself a little bit more every day and go from there. I am not a fast jogger. Uh, I'm a fast walker, but I'm a very slow jogger. And uh, anyways, I'll enjoy it. I know a lot of our listeners listen to us while exercising. That's why I'm sharing this. Um, if you're walking, try try bringing it up a notch and try jolking a little. You don't have to go far at all, but it, it definitely gets your heart rate going a little more. My only recommendation when I first started, quote unquote, jolking, I was doing it in my low hiking shoes. I have high hiking boots. I have midsize hiking boots and I have low hiking shoes. I never had sneakers for years because, again, Chris, I hadn't ran in 20 years, 28 years. And when I was in Florida, I bought my low hiking shoes down there with me. Not the most comfortable or practical shoe for jogging. Mm-hmm. I will right. tell you that right off the bat. Uh, when I finally got a pair of sneakers, I got hookahs, uh, hokas, I don't know how you pronounce them. Um, when I got hokas, which are a trail running shoe that can be used on I got the hybrid version. They uh, have soles designed for blacktop and soles that can carry over onto to, uh, trails. Because here in Colorado, most of our trails, even the flat ones, uh, are dirt, not really um, blacktop or cement. Um, so when I got those, I found it a lot easier to jog. The, the shoe really makes a difference. Yeah. But those of you who will walk in an exercise and just just try it a little. It's it's I enjoy it now. I get bored with just walking, and it's something to to try. Um, anyways, that's it. I don't want to keep yapping on and on about that. But we also got an email. We got a few emails from listeners. I'm going to just share this one. Remember, we were trying to figure out somebody said um, Heidi Ho, neighborino, and mm-hmm. I thought it was Ned Flanders from. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Simpsons, mm-hmm. or that little talking poo, whatever its name mm-hmm. is, from Hanky uh, the Christmas Park. Poo. Is it Hanky? All right, Hanky the Christmas uh, Poo. Yeah, on South Park, someone else pointed out something, and it's from a show that I confess I, I really wasn't a fan of and didn't watch much. But the times I did, I remember this character. I did not know this character said it though. This man thinks the reference is to. Uh, the, the neighbor of Tim Allen, the tool man. Um, 
Oh, from Home Improvement. Yes, that I I completely I think, forgot about that. I think that's right. I think he always said "Heidi ho neighbor" or something uh, like that whenever he talked to Tim over the fence. Right, but this person said "Heidi ho neighborino," and I thought that was yeah. the Ned Flanders. But he felt he thinks it might be. Um, oh, I don't from remember the that. Neighbor. Yeah, I remember the "Heidi ho" now that he mentions it, but I don't know about the neighborino versus neighbor. So. The only one who truly knows what they meant was the person who sent that email. Oh, true. But maybe they'll. Maybe I, I they'll can't clarify. remember who it is. Maybe it's their own saying, and they they enter they <laughs> added the areno on the end. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, anyways, it, it did make me think that. Oh yes, I think I remember, and I think that little. Uh, 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 well, it was a skit, but I think the the general way they presented that neighbor was you can never see his face, right? You only saw the top of his head. Yeah, you never through the whole thing saw his yeah, face. You I just think saw that was hat. the whole yeah. shtick there. You saw Tim mm-hmm. Allen, yeah. but you only saw kind of like the, the head of whoever was on the other side of the fence. Yeah. Okay, anyways, I did want to share that. But we got some cool questions today. We, we've got the new question of the week, obviously. We're going to lead with Social Security. I think a pretty unique Social Security question, which also has, Chris, you'll see a, a IRA component to it. And then the second Social Security question that we're going to get into uh, has a financial planning uh, hmm. connotation to it. So okay. let me see if I can actually find said questions. That's something here, because I'm trying to do this digitally, so I don't print them anymore. Um, okay, I found it. This came in um, back in December. I don't know... Uh, they do give, oh, they do give the name of the state. Let me see if I can think of a trivia question for this state. Hmm. If they don't supply one, you don't have to do the trivia. I know. It's just, I like to. And I think neighbor, not n- neighbors. Yeah, here I go with that Tim Allen on my mind. I think uh, listeners like to play along, or at least one of them somewhere likes to play along. The other ones are saying, Jim, just get to the freaking point. Um, anyways, the guy's from New York. I can't think of a trivia question off the top of my head. I was, mm, was going to just say they have a baseball team I don't like because I'm from Boston. <laughs> Everyone would know New York because I'm talking about the Yankees. But uh, I do have to say Yankees do have some phenomenal players that I like watching. Uh, but for a team itself, no, I'm a Red Sox fan. All right, so here's the Social Security question, Chris. Okay. It begins... Excuse me. It begins. My sister divorced her husband of 20 plus years and he died in 2021. Her advisor told her that she is not eligible for Social Security benefits based on his record and told her she could only claim her Social Security at her full retirement age. Now, before you start running into this, Chris, because longtime listeners should hear that sentence I just read and be screaming, that is wrong. This listener picked up on that, folks. We And Chris, I'm sure you were like sitting there saying her advisor said, what? Mm-hmm. So you can expand a little on why the advisor was wrong, but this person continues. My sister was born in August of 1957. Her full retirement age benefit will be $1,500, but her deceased ex-husband's full retirement age benefit 
is $1,300. My sister is still working and earns less than $50,000 per year, and she wants to continue working even past her full retirement age. Does that make sense? Do you need to clarify mm-hmm. anything there? No, nope, not so far. Down? I'm taking notes as you're... Okay. Yep. I believe my sister is eligible to collect her full survivor benefit of $1,300 beginning in October of 2023 when she reaches 66 and two months. Would this be considered her full retirement age for the earnings test? Or will that still be her retirement, full retirement age of 66 and six months? This listener, Chris, is really good. Mm-hmm. He, he picked up that there is a different full retirement age for survivor benefits for some people than their full retirement age for retirement benefits. That's a little known fact that yeah. a lot of people don't realize. I'm impressed. I'm impressed with this mm-hmm. this listener. Uh, I'm not impressed with the advisor who said you can't collect a, a spousal benefit, excuse me, a survivor benefit. Okay. By doing this, this strategy will allow her to get paid to wait until she's 70 when she can take advantage of her own retirement benefits and the delayed retirement credits she will receive on her record. I like his strategy. Mm -hmm. I think he's on track. What do you say? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, this woman should hire her brother as her advisor (laughs) because even though he does have a question about something that I can clarify, it is uh, he's far more on track than this person's, this woman's advisor in my, you know, based on what was shared with us. Obviously, we're getting this second hand or third hand, but uh, let me point out a few things. First of all, right at the beginning, when she was married 20 years before divorcing, that creates an eligibility for her to claim on his record even after being divorced. Essentially, they, they treat divorced people who were married at least 10 years, very similarly to still married spouses. In other words, a lot of the benefits you would have had available to you if you remained married to that person are available to you after divorce, even if, uh, well, as long as you've been married at least 10 years. And it's 10 years to the anniversary, just so people know. And 20 years is well past that. So she has eligibility for it. The only question is, is there a strategy where she could incorporate the survivor benefit into her overall claiming that would benefit her? And he's right on track. He's right on track. And I I believe there's, you know, normally this obvious trade-off between delaying and claiming early when you're talking about your own retirement benefit. Normally, if you wait past 62 Uh, which is the first year, you know, the first age at which you can claim a retirement benefit. Um, There's, you forego those payments in exchange for a higher lifetime benefit once you do turn it on with uh, the ability to to delay up to age 70. So in a case like this, though, it is possible for her to do exactly what he's proposing, claiming the survivor benefit first, leaving her own benefit unclaimed 
to then later be claimed at the age 70 benefit, which sounds like she's targeting, that will create the largest benefit uh, for her uh, lifetime, uh, the largest monthly benefit. And if she has a $1,500 full retirement age benefit, I estimate her age 70 benefit to be about $1,920 per month. So ultimately at age 70, she could turn that on. And if she didn't have access to the survivor benefit, she'd have to wait receiving nothing until she turned 70. But in this case, she can get what we call, and this listener referred to as getting paid to wait. Instead of receiving nothing during those those earlier years, she could claim a survivor benefit as early as age 60, actually. Now, it would be reduced from the 1300 that he quoted, but he is correct. If she were to wait till her full retirement age for survivor benefits, which he's right, born in 1957, that's 66 and two months, she would have eligibility to claim his full retirement age benefit or or technically whatever he was entitled to be receiving upon the day of his death or his full retirement age benefit, whichever is larger. I don't know if he died before reaching his full retirement age. We didn't get that little piece in there, but uh, let's let's trust at this point that someone has checked and dis- and determined that yes, in fact, she could receive thirteen hundred dollars at her full retirement age of sixty six in two months for survivor benefits. She could get paid that amount during that entire, you know, um, what three years and ten month period, and then turn on her age seventy benefit, switching over to it. And those of you screaming, no, you can't do that anymore. You absolutely can do this with survivor benefits in coordination with your own benefit. You can claim one without affecting the other. It's spousal benefits that you cannot do this anymore with because of deeming, unless you were born before January 2nd of 1954, which she wasn't, but we're not talking about spousal benefits in this case. The little wrinkle, which he's also picking up on, is that even though she could claim his um, you know, full benefit as her survivor benefit, at her age 66 and two months, she's continuing to work. And there's this earnings test issue. And if you've been a listener to this podcast for a while, or you've done your own research and learning on Social Security, you know that magically at your full retirement age, the earnings test disappears. In other words, once you reach your full retirement age, you no longer have to worry about your Social Security benefits being reduced because you're working and still earning money. But now we get thrown back into that issue, which applies to her. She's born in 1957, which means she has a full retirement age for survivor benefits of 66 and two months, but a full retirement age for retirement benefits, her own benefit, of 66 and six months. And he's curious which of those two ages is the magic point where the earnings test no longer applies because the earnings test is going to affect her. And you have to go to the POMS, the Program Operations Manual System, Program Operations Manual System, sorry, uh, for Social Security, which is the, we call it the, the, the Bible or the instruction booklet for how Social Security is applied. And if you go to the section on the earnings test, uh, those of you keeping track at home want to look it up yourself. This is the, the section of the POMS is RS. 
And in section B as in boy, under applying the earnings test, uh, the third entry there, number three, so B3, it states the following. Always use the FRA, full retirement age, for retirement insurance benefits when applying the annual earnings test for retirement benefits or widow-widower's insurance benefits, Although the full retirement age for widow-widower benefits might be earlier, the full retirement age for retirement insurance benefits is controlling for annual earnings test purposes. This rule applies even if the beneficiary is not entitled to their own retirement insurance benefit. Right there, it spells it out in black and white. That's the answer to his question. It's her 66 and 6 months full retirement age for retirement benefits that controls this. And uh, this is one that, um, you know, I've had to look up in the past. That's why I, you know, as I was, as you were going through this, I pulled it up so I could reference the palms um, specifically. But there's the answer to the earnings test. So does that mean she should wait until 66 and six months in order to claim a benefit? Uh, No, I think she should claim at 66 and two months And if the earnings test offsets the benefit, uh, so be it. Um, But she might get a few dollars. Then when she hits 66 and six months, four months later, uh, the earnings test will no longer apply and it won't matter. But she might get a few dollars. She said, you know, he stated that she earned less than $50,000. And so, you know, that, that may not offset all of the earnings or all of the Social Security benefit. And um, she may as well claim it. And since there's no um, effect on her ultimate retirement benefit from age 70 on by this early claiming of uh, her survivor benefit, um, I think you don't have to worry. And and I would even consider, um, well, let's see, 66 and two months. So she's about there. She's, she was reaching 66 and two months uh, uh, here in this, this October. There might be an argument, actually, if, you know, he said something less than 50000 there might be an argument, actually, for her to claim that survivor benefit right away. Uh, I'd have to see more specific numbers and what her earnings are. And, and you know, he probably used, you know, these are nice round numbers, 1300 1500 I would probably want to know them, you know, more specifically and confirm them before I'm saying this is absolutely what to do. But there might be an argument for doing that, knowing that at, at 66 and six months, so in early 2024, when she reaches full retirement age for retirement benefits, the earnings test will no longer apply or reduce those survivor benefits, and it'll go up to the full uh, amount at that time. Now, if she claims before 66 and two months, the amount will be less than $1,300 because she's then deemed early filing for those survivor benefits, but that still won't reduce her ultimate age 70 benefit because those survivor benefit claiming dates are separated from and don't leak over or, or you know affect later on the claiming of the retirement benefit. So uh, those rules are unique for survivor. Those don't apply to spousal benefits when your spouse is, or ex-spouse is still alive. So make sure you're very you know, clear in your mind on keeping those two things separate. We're talking specifically about what, what Social Security calls widower-widower benefits, uh, widow or widower benefits. Um, 
what we usually call survivor benefits, just because it kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. But um, yeah, I like what he's thinking, and I think he uh, she didn't get the full story or really a very helpful answer from her advisor uh, on this particular thing because her brother definitely knows more than the advisor based on what he shared. Okay, well, it gets worse, and I'm certainly not Uh looking to throw the advisor under the bus. Um, He gets into an IRA question next, so um, we'll we'll deviate from the second Social Security question for a second, and let me continue with the IRA question. Uh, We're certainly not looking to throw this advisor under the bus. My my gut tells me perhaps the advisor is an investment advisor, not really a financial planner, and maybe he or she is giving phenomenal investment advice, but is not giving very good financial planning advice. I would encourage the brother to to ask the sister what other advice is this advisor giving, though, and the brother seems to be spot on, as you'll see in a minute, folks, uh, not only with Social Security, but with the IRA issue, and... Um, Perhaps the advisor is also giving bad advice in, in other sections that this brother may want to double check. But anyways, uh, it's neither hand nor there. No advisor is perfect. We're all human. I have made mistakes as as the last few EDU shows have proven. And uh, we, we, we certainly are not throwing the advisor under the bus here. But the advisor gave bad advice again, Chris, with an IRA. So This gentleman continues. My sister also received advice that she cannot stretch withdrawals from the IRA she inherited from her ex-husband. The advisor told her she had to abide by the 10-year rule because they were divorced. So let me pause there a little bit, folks. As you know, under the SECURE Act, the ability to quote-unquote stretch an inherited IRA based on the life expectancy of the person who inherited it has been greatly reduced. It has not been eliminated. It's just been reduced. Prior to SECURE Act, prior to January of 2020, the ability to stretch an IRA was pretty much available to every beneficiary. There's a few exceptions to that Every mostly if there was no named but yeah mm-hmm. human beneficiaries it's when you named a non-human or didn't have anybody named period uh on the the ira that you might run into an issue where the ira had to be closed within five years the 10-year rule never existed and most of the stretch came into vogue uh in 2002 after the passage of i think it was the pension protection act or some act that created the ability to stretch prior to that you couldn't stretch so there's this little window of time uh in the early 21st century when you could stretch an ira after secure after january 1st of 2020 the government said hey you can still stretch but in very limited circumstances and they created a whole set of classifications for beneficiaries and one of the classifications we talked about this on the podcast folks was called eligible designated beneficiaries i always tell people when you see the word eligible designation eligible excuse me designated beneficiary gee i can't speak today but that's nothing new when you see designated beneficiary substitute human 
And we used to say that, Chris, before mm-hmm. secure. Right. Just when you see those two words together, designated beneficiary, just substitute the word human and it's going to become a lot easier. So the government created a class of beneficiaries called eligible designated beneficiaries. I like to say eligible humans. And then ask yourself, what are those humans eligible for? The government's saying they're eligible humans. These are humans who are eligible to what, Chris? To stretch still under today's rules. Right, to stretch the IRA. Well, her current advisor is correct where one of the eligible designated beneficiaries or eligible humans is a spouse. If you're not a spouse, you are not an eligible designated beneficiary. But there are four other eligible designated beneficiaries a Mm -hmm. former spouse could fall into. Right. Well. Some of them. Not the the minor child. (laughs) No, that's the one I'm going to say now. The the one I'm going to mention now, uh, unless you live, I don't even want to go there because I'll just offend people, (laughs) would be your minor child. And for the best of my knowledge, no one is marrying their minor child. So the ex-spouses are going to fall into that category, I concede. But minor children of the IRA owner who died are at least until age 21 an eligible designated beneficiary or an eligible human to stretch until they reach 21. Then they have to take the 10-year rule from 21 to 31. Okay. The other ones, a disabled individual, an individual who is cognitively declined, or the one that applies here, an individual who is not more than 10 years younger than the decedent. Chris and I often call this the sibling exemption. Most Mm -hmm. siblings are within 10 years of each other. Not all, but most are within 10 years of each other. If a sibling or non-sibling is more than 10 years younger than the decedent, they cannot stretch. They are not an eligible designated beneficiary or eligible human. They go right to the actual, not the years, the dates of birth. You got to kind of map it out. And if you are 10 years and one day younger than the decedent, you cannot stretch. If you are 10 years and 364 days younger than the decedent, you can stretch. One day can make a no, huge you meant difference. nine years and 364. Right. Years. I was testing you and very good. Mm-hmm. So you got that little clap? It's Give because yourself it's, a clap. It's because it's earlier, early enough in the day that I'm able to... <laughs> No, no, gotcha. you yeah. picked up on it. I was, I was purposefully doing that. That, that was. Mm-hmm. It sounds mm-hmm. like I meant to say what I said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all testing good. you. Very good, Chris. Okay, this listener picked mm-hmm. up on something that his sister's advisor didn't. Right. He goes on to say, "My sister is actually one year older than her deceased husband." So, Chris, by default, can someone one year older be more than 10 years younger 
than the decedent? Not on planet Earth. That's not how that works. <laughs> so she doesn't fall into this eligible category because she's a spouse, because she's not the spouse. They were divorced. But she falls into this category of eligibility because of that 10-year issue. And not a sibling, but an ex-spouse. And we haven't pointed that out, but the, the he's absolutely right. This would be a classic case where someone is likely not to be more than 10 years younger. There are some, obviously, out there, but... But the uh, more common is the you know your spouse you and your spouse are within ten years of one another, so um, that if if they still left it to you even though you were divorced you were had a had an amicable divorce or they forgot to change their beneficiary designation form, um, you are if you're the beneficiary of that IRA you can still stretch based on your life expectancy, which she's young enough that that life expectancy is going to be longer than ten years. And so this advisor telling them you have to do the 10-year rule is uh, possibly causing them some tax consequences that they would otherwise like to avoid. Right. We have no idea how big the IRA right. was. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just $10,000 and yeah, no big deal. it's not going to make one big difference. What if it was a million dollars? And now the advisor is saying, you got to close this thing within 10 years. Sorry. That's massive amount of taxes. He gives no idea the dollar amount. But he continues. My sister is one year older than her deceased husband and therefore not more than 10 years younger. So I advised her that she should take her first stretch, RMD, and calculate it using the single life expectancy table. Now remember, folks, he wrote this to us last year in December of 2020. Two, also remember, folks, the gentleman, the husband, died in 2021. Right. So the wife, excuse me, the ex-wife, his sister, needed to take her first RMD under the stretch rules by December 31st of 2022. Right. So I, I apologize. We're only getting to the answer now. And even though he wrote to us, he wrote to us in December, there wouldn't have been a lot of time to get this answered anyways. I think he can still so, fix it, though. But Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll get into that in a yeah. second. I'm hoping that the sister listened to the brother and right. actually did what, she, what he said. But even yeah. if she didn't, all is not lost, listener. Right. Okay. So he said, was I correct that if she did not start the stretch in, excuse me, I don't know where he got this part because he didn't add any clarity, but he wrote, was I correct that if she did not start the stretch in 2022, that the 10-year rule will have to be implied? Yes. Yes, but no. I'll get to that in a second. You often refer to this as the only as only impacting siblings, but this divorced spouse case seems to make this an important exception to the law. It's not an exception to the law. It is what the law says, as long as you're not more than 10 years younger. It's not an exception. She is an eligible designated beneficiary, an eligible human to stretch. We often see it with parents, like we just recently answered a question where parents sadly inherited an IRA from their deceased son. They are allowed to stretch. Why? They are older than the decedent. If you inherit an IRA from someone and you are older, 
you are an eligible designated beneficiary and can stretch. Back to his question. He's saying, now remember, he wrote to us in mid-December of 2022. The sister needed to take her first RMD by December 31st of 2022 because her ex died in 2021. There was only a few weeks of the year left for the sister to make up her mind, allegedly, but all is not lost. In a perfect world, the default is the stretch for an eligible designated beneficiary. Government's going to default that. So she should have taken her first RMD on December 31st. But to the best of my knowledge, and I will have to write to the Ed Slot group on this, and there was something else. Can you remember what it was we were going to clarify and I was going to ask Ed from a previous show? If you can remember, you don't have to say now. Please let me know while I write to Ed on this. But the default is to stretch. If you miss that RMD, it does not mean under secure, to the best of my interpretation of secure law, that you automatically lose your ability to stretch and you have to go to the 10-year rule. If your sister did not take a stretch RMD by December 31st of 2022, take it now. Figure out what her RMD would have been last year. I won't get into how you figure that out. I'm sure, listener, you know how to do it. Figure out what the RMD for 2022 would have been and have her file form 5329 for 2022. 5329 is the mea culpa form, as I say this all the time. It is the form that you fill in when you screw up and you missed something and now you have to pay a penalty with a retirement account. In fact, the name of 5329, this is a pure bureaucratic IRS name for sure, it is called the Form for Additional Taxes on Qualified Plans, including IRAs and other tax-favored accounts. In other words, they're saying the form to use when you screw up and you owe a penalty on a retirement account, whether it's a 401k or an IRA. That's what that form is. So your system will file form 5329 and also attach a letter to it. We talked about this in the past. And she should just simply say, hey, I inherited this from my deceased husband. I did not realize I was subject to required minimum distributions. I found this out as I was doing my taxes. The timing here is perfect, folks. As I was doing my taxes for 2022, I discovered I was required to take a required minimum distribution. I immediately took that distribution and I will pay all associated taxes on it. I have also put in place, and because you have to tell them you did something to make sure this never happens again. I have also put in place automatic required distributions to come out from that IRA by the custodian every single year. You attach that kind of letter of explanation. And as you fill in the form, um, 
should I go into now? We've we've done it on prior podcast show. Yeah, Maybe I, don't I know should. We're, or we're going to eat up this whole show with this. Yeah, we'll eat up email. the whole show. Um, as you fill in the form, listen to our prior podcasts or Google how to fill in form fifty three twenty nine with Mist RMD. They'll walk you through how to actually indicate to the government you are asking for an exemption to the fifty percent penalty tax, which now post-secure two, and I think it's effective as of this year. So your sister is still under the old rule, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. The 50% has been cut to 25%. And if you fix it, if you fix the error as, quote, unquote, as soon as possible or something to that effect in the law, which is... uh, I forget what it's defined as, but if you fix it right away, they'll even lower the penalty to 10%. There is a thought that you're, the under the new rules, the IRS is going to be less forgiving. Mm-hmm. In the past, before Secure 2, your sister would have never paid the 50% penalty tax. I guarantee that. I have done dozens of these for our clients when they miss an RMD. Not one of them ever had to pay the penalty tax. I believe vehemently the IRS is going to start imposing a 25 or maybe even 10%, but no more zero. However, you got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Bill it in as if it was zero. Google how to do it. Have your sister file it. Worst case scenario, they're going to come back and say, we're going to impose a 10% penalty tax, or we're going to impose a 25% penalty tax, or maybe because this happened before Secure 2 took place, they say a 50, but I would be shocked on that. Anyways, all is not lost, listener, for your sister. She can stretch. But I will confirm all this with the Ed Slot group that she is not going to be defaulted into the 10-year rule. Well, that's, if she doesn't stretch. take the RMD, that's what opts her in because the decedent had not reached their required beginning date. There's well, we n- don't know that. He never well, specified No, we do her. know that because, oh, because she's, this decedent is a year younger than she is and she doesn't, return, she doesn't reach her full retirement oh, age until right. you know, later this year. So they're both under their required beginning date. So she didn't have to take an RMD if she was taking the 10-year. If she wanted to stretch, then she needed to take an RMD in 2022. But if she didn't take the RMD in 2022 or three or four, whatever, they're going to demand that that thing be closed within 10 years because she's, by that action, opted for the 10-year rule. Gotcha. Very good. So Very good that, that, the, the fact that we knew in this case that the decedent was below their required beginning date kind of clarifies that a little bit okay so anyways listener and listeners that's kind of very good questions there from that listen that 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 gentleman um he he appears to know more than her advisor so he may just want to check some of the other things the advisor is telling your the sister mm-hmm. uh and and go from there again we're not going to throw any advisor under the bus because chris and i are not infallible and we do make mistakes I am going to try to get a little bit of clarity from the Ed Slot group on on that default issue under Secure 1 and now 2 uh, and see what they have to say. And, and Chris, if you can think of the other thing that I said I was going to ask Ed, or if anyone else is yeah, listening. I'll, I'll let you know. I, I've got yeah. my notes. Sometimes people keep track and get a hold of us. Hey, you never really clarified. Recently, folks, I said I will ask Ed Slot 
something and I can't remember what it was. If anybody remembers what it is, write to me so I can ask Ed. Okay, this next one, we're not going to get into the next Social Security. Let's get into the new question of the week and then to this Social Security question, which is more of a financial planning question. This one is kind of applicable. You nailed it, huh? Applicable now because of everything going on with the bank failures. So that's why I want to answer this question. It came in this week. Um, oh, and I love the hint he gave, Chris. If you can get this, I'll be impressed. Dude, mm. sit on your hands. Okay. Promise me you are putting that fat behind of yours on your two hands. Okay. And I don't want you Googling this real I quick. Won't. But I like I like his hint. I am from the state where Jimi Hendrix was born. Hmm. Um, wow. I know we have a lot of baby boomers listening to us, and I'm sure some of them. Hendrix was just phenomenal. I, mm-hmm. I really admire that man's music. I had no idea he was born in this state, but um, he is from the state where Jimi Hendrix is born. I guarantee you someone listening is, knows the answer because they're Hendrix fans and they're screaming it out right now. You got a one out of 50 chance, Chris. Yeah, I know. I will give you, a, I'll, I'll further it down a little bit okay. for you. West of the Mississippi. Okay, California. I was going to give you more hints, but no, Washington. Oh. According to this gentleman, Jimi Hendrix was born in Washington, and this is where he's from. Interesting. He says, hey, Jim and Chris, can you talk about SIPIC? SIPIC, folks, uh, can you Google real quick? Now now, now take your... S-I-P-C is usually... We don't usually pronounce it as SIPIC, but... I always do. Uh, (laughs) You do? Sipsy. Yeah, I always call it sipping. You know me. I cut, Look, you're talking to the guy who says pulling teeth from a baby so and beating a horse the FDIC? to death. No, I say FDIC on that, but this one I say sip it. Huh. Oh, I'm going to say fittick from now on just you know, to <laughs> offset you. SIPC. Can you Google real <laughs> yeah. fast what it's that the, stands for? It's the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Okay, S-I-P-C. perfect. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This is a... It's a relic, but it's important today. But it was really important when it came out uh, a long, long time ago. I think it was around the Great Depression that they started doing this. But anyways, can you talk well, about yeah, the S- Great Depression I- of 1970? Say what? The Great Depression of 1970. <laughs> okay, so it was after the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah. um, with the current banking situation, everyone is talking about the FDIC and their 250,000 limits. And FDIC seems easy enough to understand. But a lot of your listeners have brokerage accounts. And I bet it exceeds the $500,000 SIPC limit. So should we also be splitting our holdings with different custodians to improve SIPC coverage? Similar to what people sometimes do with their FDIC insured bank accounts. Thanks. And he gives his real name. We're going to call him George. I want to just add a little bit of clarity to this. SIPC is protection from the failure of a broker dealer or custodian holding your investment assets. When that broker has or dealer has lost those assets somehow. Right. And that's what so, I'm getting at. Yeah. The... Your custodial accounts, assuming your broker-dealer is not doing something nefarious like Bernie Madoff did. We're going to talk about Madoff in a second. 
because um, he skirted this and SIPC came to protect a lot of Madoff investors. Right. Okay. The custodian holding your assets, assuming they're not Bernie Madoff, and for those of you who are with Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity and um, TD Ameritrade, the custodian we use, um, there are, are these are massive, massive, massive companies. It's not to say they couldn't fail, but what I'm getting at is I don't believe these companies are doing fraudulent things like Bernie Madoff yeah, was. And that's the key. It's not that the failure is going to lose your money because your your relationship with these broker-dealers is very different than your relationship with the bank. With the bank, they're taking your money in, and then they're on their own investing that in something of their choice. And the bank is investing it in loans, and the bank could become insolvent, and those loans could go bad, and there could actually be a, quote, loss of money in that relationship. With a broker-dealer, unless something nefarious is going on, they're just holding your assets in a bucket. It's almost like you know the banking equivalent to that would be if you put your money in a bank and they just simply put your money in the safe and didn't do anything with it and it was there. Obviously, the bank failing doesn't make the cash disappear. Someone would have to go into the safe and take it in order for something to happen. That's more what would, you know, that's what's going on at the broker dealer is they are holding those assets. They're not taking them and investing them on their own for their own purposes like a bank is doing. So the, the, it's a qu quite different and that's why you don't really hear about SIPC much except in fraud cases where the Bernie Madoffs of the world or similar have fraudulently extracted dollars that they're supposed to just be holding in the bucket for you and then the SIPC comes to the rescue, if you will, up to their limits, which uh, for for securities is $500,000 and up to half that can be cash. So sorry okay. to interrupt, but... No, no, that's uh, fine. And, and Chris is correct on everything he's saying. The best way to understand this, uh, when you give your money to the bank, that money becomes a bank asset. It's not held separately for you. Right. The bank intermingles it in the quote-unquote general account, similar to an insurance company, a fixed insurance company, or a fixed insurance company product. It's the bank's. It's theirs. It's, it's technically no longer yours. So you can lose it in a bank failure because they're taking that money and they're going and doing something with it. A custodian holding investments, assuming it's not a Bernie Madoff, are holding your assets separately in trust. They are not an asset of Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard. They're your assets, not theirs. They are just holding it and affecting trades for you, being paid for doing it. They do collect fees, even though nowadays you don't see fees directly. But uh, you know, Schwab and Vanguard, when you buy ETFs and stocks, generally don't charge you a commission anymore, but they're making money uh, with what, oh God, now my mind just went blank. They're making money off the of order the flow. Uh, order flow. Thank you. They make money off of the order flow. Okay. That's neither here nor there. Those assets are not Schwab's. They're not Fidelity's. They're not TD Ameritrade's. They are yours. They're held separately. And if that institution went under, your assets are not subject to the creditors of that custodian. So SIPC was designed, even if Chris is right, and I'm sure he is in the 70s and not during the Depression, it was still during a time when paper stock certificates 
and paper coupon bearing bonds were in vogue. That's how they did it back then. We didn't, especially in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, computers to the extent that we know them today didn't exist. And it was possible there could be a fire at the custodian or where these paper things are being held. If you were asking the custodian to hold these pieces of paper so you didn't have to, and they they would hold them in street name and you could still lose them or their employees could steal them. Mm -hmm. So SIPC was created more for fraud because your assets were already protected because they're not the custodians. Now, this gentleman says, because yes, maybe... Some of these major custodians that I listed are fraudulent and nobody's figured it out yet. And there's nothing there. Tough to see that happening, but possible. Many in people have, as this gentleman said, much more than half a million dollars at their custodian. And what if there is fraud happening at the custodian? Yes, like Bernie Madoff, you could lose much, much more. Well, Many custodians purchase additional insurance, and I'm sure the ones that I have listed all have. I know TD has. I would assume Schwab and everyone else has. They buy extra insurance on their own. Read their websites, and they'll tell you, we we purchase an additional $10, $20 million of of coverage beyond SIPC. So you have more protections that way. But again, SIPC is not going to protect you if the market falls. It's not going to protect you if the particular investment that you purchased turned out to be fraudulent. That has nothing to do with the custodian. The custodian is just buying what you tell them to buy. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. Uh, the, The SIPC is a little bit different. Should you break it up amongst multiple uh, custodians, if you feel your custodian is doing something fraudulent or you worry, especially you Vanguardians, that Vanguard is fraudulent, yeah, I would be worried. Maybe you want to break it up, but find out from Vanguard how much more additional protection beyond SIPC's half a million do they provide. Maybe you have ample coverage, but also maybe you realize, okay, I don't really think Vanguard is doing anything fraudulent. Now, how about if Vanguard was hacked someday and somehow all these holdings were stolen unbeknownst to Vanguard and sold somehow else because everything is electronic? That's when SIPC might come into play or this additional insurance. So you may want to check to see how much additional insurance your particular custodian has. And if you're above that, then you might want to consider breaking it up. But I, so many custodians, Chris, add significant coverage beyond SIPC limits. And again, I, I just don't think anything fraudulent is going on at these custodians. But I will concede nowadays with hacking, could someone theoretically hack into these accounts, steal these electronic versions of ETFs and mutual funds and stocks and bonds, somehow find a different custodian, somehow enter the public markets and sell them before anyone realizes what's going on? I don't know. I'm not a computer expert, but I'm sure these custodians have protections in place to guard against that. So anyways, that's kind of a good question, Mm -hmm. but SIPC is is different. Bernie Madoff, how did he get away with it? Well, 
I can't believe people didn't question this. I, I, I'm, I'm appalled. Bernie Madoff was a uh, registered investment advisor fiduciary towards the end of his illustrious or lack of illustrious career. Prior to that, he, he had a broker deal. He was a broker. And he would actually tell people, Chris, I'm going to hold your money. So give me your money and I am going to give you a statement of what it's worth. There was no independent custodian holding the alleged investments that Madoff was buying, much like you get with Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard or TD Ameritrade. Now, granted, you can use advisors of these companies as well, but the, the, I, I wouldn't fear it. I don't think a lot of these companies are fraudulent, but keep that in mind. If if the custodian holding your asset is also giving you the advice and claiming that this is what you have, and it's just a, a one-man shop like Bernie Madoff was, you might want to question that. Well, the SEC after Madoff really cracked down on, on this uh, with advisors, especially who we're taking custody is what it's called of client accounts and giving advice on those accounts. And doing so their own reporting all, and everything. Right. Yeah. So all these large custodians like Schwab and Fidelity who have their own advisors and custody, they have to go through rigorous annual independent audits where firms that have nothing to do with those custodians are auditing and reporting to the SEC that, in fact, what these firms are reporting are, in fact, there. They are very, very rigorous and difficult. And most financial planners now, except for these very deep-pocketed billion-dollar companies that I've named, don't hold custody anymore because it's so expensive to get these audits. We avoid it like the plague. Now, I've always avoided taking custody even before the Bernie Madoff fiasco. Uh, and I've always used independent custodians. And 99%, I think, of advisors still do. But you may find some advisory firms that still will take custody and give you advice and send you the statements, which is what Madoff did. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. They printed the statements themselves, Chris, and just mailed them out. Yeah, this is what you got. And that's why it went on for so long, because he was the one reporting and there was no one auditing to make sure what he said was actually happening. Uh, and when they were audited by the regulators, they came up with a lot of fake documents. And sadly, the regulators missed many red flags and never examined. And, and the rest is history. So anyways, SIPC came in and helped in that case because there was some SIPC protection because Madoff was nothing more than a big time fraud. Yep. Okay. This next question, I know we'll probably have to go a little quicker through it. It's a social security, but planning question, Chris. Okay. He says, I don't think he gives a, oh, he did give a, a, oh, this is a good one. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get this one right either. Uh -oh. Again, take your hands and sit your I've got rather... Rather bulbous hiney on it. Mm -hmm. I am from the state that is the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. I got this one wrong. I had no idea Lincoln was born in this state. Well, it sounds like it must be a trick question. So 
It can't be Illinois. I know he was born in a log cabin in Illinois, wasn't he? I'm only going for what I'll have you Googling in a second. But, but, but I suspect but the way they, they suggested that, that they want me to think it's Illinois. But he was actually born somewhere else and then raised in the log cabin in Illinois. So I'm going to go with somewhere east of there. Um, Can you narrow it down? Pennsylvania. <laughs> Pennsylvania. No. The Bluegrass State of Kentucky. Hmm. I did not know Lincoln was born in Kentucky. But according to this gentleman, uh, Google it real quick while I'm reading his question. But according to this gentleman, uh, Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky, which, by the way, folks, is a state that I may relocate to in retirement. Okay, it says, Dear Jim and Chris, this is a Social Security question. Hodgenville, Kentucky. Oh, okay. So he was born in Kentucky. This person Mm -hmm. knew what he was talking about. What is your advice on when to claim Social Security, if all? Your secure income needs will be met, even if you claim your Social Security as early as possible. My wife and I are 59, retired, sort of, he put, and living off a combination of my U.S. government pension, part-time income, self-employed income, not quite sure the difference. Oh, he must, someone must work for someone and the other one must be self-employed. We are fortunate that even if we both claimed Social Security at 62, we will still have $110,000 of annual secure income comprised of a $65,000 pension and Social Security benefits of $18,000 for one of us and $27,000 for the other. This will easily meet our minimum dignity floor with a fair amount of funds left over for our fun. Maybe not all our fun, but a lot of our fun. If we both wait to 70 to claim, we will have just under 144000 of income. Even if our self-employment income went away, we could bridge any income gap between 62 and 70 with savings. And if I die, 75% of my government pension, oh, excuse me, should I die, 75% of my government pension goes away. Our plan for that possibility is life insurance, which we currently have, and the proceeds of which we feel can be annuitized into an equal amount of income. I do have the larger of the two Social Security benefits, if that matters. Thanks for your show. What do you think, Chris? Interesting question. Mm -hmm. It's more of a planning question, the Social Security question, but I'm throwing it in there because he's, Mm -hmm. he's asking, geez, should we wait or not? The first thing I'd always ask in a circumstance like this, especially when people have done their own, you know, drawn their own conclusions about it, is does the pension have an inflation adjustment? Because sometimes it looks like you're set. It looks like you're in a beautiful position as a foundation of social secure income covering the minimum dignity floor and maybe more right now or early in retirement, but people underestimate the cumulative effects of inflation on the minimum dignity floor, particularly with health care which is a big component in the minimum dignity floor, 
And if a big chunk of their secure income, which the pension is the largest piece in, in their example, does not have an inflation adjustment, there might still be an argument for delaying Social Security past 62 uh, in order to make sure they have a bigger proportion of their secure income that has an inflation adjustment. Now, the more you read it, I'm pretty sure he has a FERS pension because the 25% survivorship for the spouse, that's you know one of the, one of the options with FERS. Um, he calls it a government pension. Uh, not a not a school pension or something like that. So, I suspect he actually has a cost of living adjustment on it, which means that all of his secure income, social security and the pension, has inflation adjustment. The survivorship is always the second question, and he proactively answered that question. We've got you know life insurance. I would verify that that life insurance is guaranteed to cover until you're sure your spouse would not need that. If you were to pass away, uh, in other words, he didn't tell you know what type of life insurance it is, but if it's a term policy or a type of policy that might you know stop working or stop uh, you know the premiums might skyrocket, you know not a permanent guaranteed style policy, I would be a little concerned about that, uh, you know. But if she if all the boxes are checked there, then it becomes, gee, what can I do with that money uh, that might be beneficial? Uh, if it, you know, the, the claiming strategy for social security becomes so non impactful to their overall situation, as far as succeeding in retirement, that then we kind of look at, gee, what's the best use of that money? You know, is, is there a, you know, would you, and and we, oftentimes I then start talking about, you know, what, what would you regret the most if it happened or, you know, um, might you want to divert some of that? You don't really need this much, but if you took it early, you could afford maybe a little more life insurance uh, to pay to kids or grandkids or something like that, that you could kind of convert some of that Social Security secure income into inheritance if that's important for you. Or or maybe they could travel more in in you know early in retirement if, if they had it earlier versus later. Uh, if you're, as long as you're not jeopardizing the long-term protection of the minimum dignity floor with secure income, I have you know really no complaint against people turning on Social Security early to embellish their go-go period. So those are my general thoughts on this. Uh, this is not a, you know there's not a uh, you know one answer to this problem. This is going to be nuanced and kind of specific to what they value the most. Yeah, I, I take that same approach. I would say one, I mean, he's got the largest Social Security, and um, I agree with you. Now, I do feel uh, that the government pension will have a COLA adjustment and will continue to grow, but 75% of it will go away. So that insurance policy is very important. Uh, it's the first thing that was jumping through my mind. You don't know how many times, folks, we are told by people, oh, I have an insurance policy and, and it does this. It's a permanent policy and it's going to do that. And we ask for an enforced illustration. And then when we look at it, we see that the policy is never going to last. It's going to, to either require substantially more in premiums or it's just going to fail. So he needs to watch that insurance policy like a hawk. And just don't believe the agent who, who sold it to you. Ask for an in-force illustration. I'd ask for it every year. And just make sure the policy is performing as hoped and will, in fact, last. And then also make sure that the death benefit can continue to replace 
the amount of money that your wife will need to turn into secure income. Just make sure that there's enough there. If there's not, you might want to earmark a little bit of additional monies to support it. He seems fairly certain the insurance policy will work. Just don't set it and forget it. Monitor that policy. But there were other ideas going through my head. I think the wife might be in a position where she could turn her Social Security on right away. And he waits to 70 to get the largest death benefit in case one of them lives a long time. The older you will greatly appreciate secure income because of its simplicity and ease, as opposed to having to manage a portfolio. Do keep that in mind. But I also started thinking of the same thing, Chris. He has a life insurance. They're still in their 50s. So he qualifies, I would assume. He doesn't tell us what his ratings are, how healthy he is. Doesn't tell us at all if he has children, if a guaranteed inheritance is important. Just shares with us that they don't really need all of their secure income. So I'm looking at the wife's $18,000 of Social Security, and I don't know if that's at 62 or 70, but I'm looking at this income that perhaps the wife doesn't need and there's no need to wait on hers and thinking, maybe you can start collecting that and investing it. Just take it and monthly put it into an investment. Great dollar cost averaging. You could, as Chris said, embellish and start spending it, yes, but maybe you can get into a disciplined investment to leave those dollars to someone as a guaranteed inheritance. Or maybe you can look at getting a second-to-die guaranteed universal life policy, especially with interest rates rising now, which GULs more than other insurance policies really key off of. You have an individual policy listener that will pay at your death to give your wife money to replicate the 75% of your pension that's going to be lost. That's an expensive type of life insurance. It's a very common type of life insurance, but it's expensive because it only insures one life. You add a second life onto a policy, the premium drops. I would argue, depending on when you bought your policy listener, you and your wife on a second-to-die GUL will have a lower premium for probably more death benefit than what you're currently paying. You add a second life to a life insurance policy, you will be shocked at how much the premium can drop. Why? It's always a risk that one person could die the very day after signing a life insurance policy, and the insurance company recognizes this risk. I call it the bus risk. You sign it, you're all excited, you're walking down the street, and boom, you get hit by a bus and you're gone. Insurance company knows that can happen. The chances of two people with one of them dying unexpectedly quite early is far less, and it lowers the overall premium for everyone. We use guaranteed universal life policies to help guarantee inheritances. And if the health of you and your wife are there, you're still young enough in your 50s, if your health is there, you might find that the premiums she could earn by claiming her Social Security at 62, she'd have to still wait a few more years but I wouldn't wait on getting the, the insurance if you qualify. But those premiums might be able to purchase millions of dollars of tax-free 
guaranteed inheritance at the death of the second spouse, not the death of the first spouse. It pays at the death of the second. This might allow you to feel more comfortable spending your other dollars knowing, hey, we're going to turn on one Social Security early. It's going to buy one, two, three million dollars of guaranteed life insurance tax free to our children or, or someone else. It doesn't have to be kids if you don't have any kids. Therefore, we feel even more comfortable spending our assets down because we have the guaranteed inheritance taken care of. Remember, folks, in our calculation of your quote-unquote fun number, guaranteed inheritances are one of the subtractions from your see-through portfolio. As you're trying to come up with your fun number, money that you want to guarantee to be left for someone is not put in the fun category. You have to pull it out because you can only spend a dollar once. Well, what if you could leave those dollars in the fund because you're taking some secure income by your own admission you don't need and leveraging it into a second to die guaranteed universal life policy? He doesn't share enough with us, Chris, that this strategy would work. But if you have children, if you would like to guarantee a tax-free inheritance, and that's key, and if you live he lives in what state? Kentucky. I don't think Kentucky has. Does Kentucky have an estate tax? God, I should know this. I'm thinking of moving there. I think they might have an inheritance tax, though. Do they have an estate tax or an inheritance tax in Kentucky or I, none? I don't know. Let me look. Google that real quick. Anyways, for those of you listening who live in a state with an estate tax, where your estate will pay the tax. An inheritance tax, the beneficiary pays the tax. Yeah, it has an inheritance tax. So hopefully the kids don't live in Kentucky. So there is an inheritance tax in Kentucky. A state tax, though, where the estate pays the state estate tax. God, that's that's hard to say real fast. Uh, Such as Washington. We have a lot of clients in Washington. In Massachusetts, where my family lives, their estate is going to have to pay a state tax estate tax. Using life insurance held inside a irrevocable life insurance trust is a wonderful way to get around the state estate tax and income tax that the beneficiaries would have to pay. Wonderful strategy. So these are some of the thoughts running through my mind. There is no right or wrong answer. This is more of the art of financial planning. Other advisors listening to this might be saying, Jim and Chris, I totally disagree. This is what they should do. This is more of an opinion than a right or wrong answer. And those do-it-yourselfers, you might be saying the same thing. There's no right or wrong answer here, Chris. I think they have to do what applies to them. We're just trying to give them some food for thought. Yep. Okay. Well, I'll have to wrap for today. That's it? Yeah, All right. I know we only got through technically only three emails. No, four. But, I count that first one as Right, that two. was two, so I agree. That's that's more of a four, and, and we had some, I think, some good uh, rabbit hole lengthy discussions on a couple of very interesting emails, so I, I don't feel too bad about only getting to four questions, but it'll have to be uh, what it is today since I've got some other obligations I've got to head to shortly. Okay, well... Thanks, listeners, for, for listening to, to another show. And thanks for those of you who actually send send us questions. We appreciate it. Uh, Chris will share with you a little bit of more information on how to contact us if you need to. 
everyone have a great day. Yeah, if you want to send in your own questions, just send them directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. Just make sure in the um, uh, subject line that you indicate that it's a question or a comment for the podcast so he's sure to catch his eye. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 